This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's Saturday and it's 5 o'clock and I think it's the beginning of a long weekend. Is it now? Yeah, Andre, I think it is. Even though I am notoriously bad at working through my long weekends, <laughs> I am going to... Actually, I think I'm going to be commuting that day. So there you go. I take my holidays <laughs> to drive long distances. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, once again, you're out on the road. We're going to touch on that a little bit later on on the show. I mean, are you ever going to come back home or are you just away like the entire summer? Oh, my God. I miss Toronto so much, Andre, and I feel out of the loop and I feel like you're going to drive the bus for what we're going to be talking about in this first <laughs> segment here. And it seems like some really big news, at least for us who are kind of, you know, folks who are really into wine and, and spirits and all things going on uh it sounds like we're just like intense consumers, which I think we, we are. we're tasters. We're tasters, but that also means we're heavily invested in the social economics. You know, this industry. is something. This is something that I'm starting to see sort of quietly happening. So I remember when um, the Kathleen Wynne government announced that wine and beer would be for sale in grocery stores, and as a consumer back then, I was quite excited to see the change. I mean, I've made no secret that I think our liquor laws are quite archaic. I think there definitely is some room in the province for some competition, especially from smaller retailers who can bring some more variety and maybe some more unique products to the to the shelf. So when grocery stores got on board, I was just like, oh, wow, like this is going to be great news. This is going to be something where, you know, maybe the wineries of Ontario will have another place to uh, sell their products or, you know, the breweries of Ontario. I mean, most grocery stores make a big deal out of the grown in Ontario stuff. So like, why not add to their offerings? And then once it actually rolled out, it turns out that what was happening at the grocery stores was not the big radical change that we all hoped it would be. All the products no. are, are run for sale through the LCBO. And if you are a wine lover like you and I, and you've set foot in a grocery store wine and beer selection, it is tepid at best. It's filled with the same old, same old large brands. And, you know, it is great that some Ontario wineries have managed to get their way onto the shelves. But once again, it's not the small and unique products. It's the larger places. You know, Andrew Peller owns the wine shop licenses and uh, Artera owns the wine rack licenses. So, I mean, for many people, they didn't see any big changes to what was available in the grocery stores. And uh, now what we're seeing, and actually, of all places I found this, it was the St. Catherine Standard. I didn't see this in the Financial Post. I didn't see this in the Toronto Sun. Um, but it's just saying that there's some Toronto area grocery stores are quietly closing their wine and beer sections because they weren't making any money off of it. And yeah, and <laughs> I'm I surprised it's taken this, this long. Article, well, what was fascinating about this article too was that there there seemed to be more reasons than maybe the reason we were thinking about why they weren't selling, right? Like there's a part of me thinking, oh, alcohol in general always has low margins in Ontario. Yeah. And even if you're bringing in the big brands, I mean, especially with the lack of diversity in the brands, right? When you said it was the same old, same old, it's even worse than the LCBO. 100%. It's the very, very limited large brand. And you're going to see them repeated again and again. So between that, between, you know, deciding to do it at the LCBO versus the grocery store, I might as well go to the LCBO and look for a little bit of diversity. And of course, now we have more bottle shops in the GTA, if nowhere else, which um, increases the number of uh, you know, kinds of wines and, and and beer and spirits you can get that is not even available at the LCBO. However, it seemed like there were other reasons. They were reports of higher theft. And with the advent of um, self-checkout, it makes it even harder um, to regulate this product and regulate theft of the product. And it's a it's a low margin product, but it's yeah. a high, usually a high cost 
Well, can for, we can we just take a moment for to, anybody to be carrying to be carrying alcohol? Can we can we talk right? a little bit about the margins on it though? Because the, it's a low margin product, but it's an artificial low margin. And I mean, this is something where I do have strong views on it. Like alcohol is a drug. I mean, it's a regulated drug, but it still is a drug. And you know, the high tax rate on it is something that. Uh, helps pay for our healthcare. It helps go, go into the general coffers. And you and I have talked a lot about how we don't mind the government taking money if we see where the money is going. But when these licenses were rolled out to grocers, they got to bid on their margins to get the licenses. And the bids were somewhere between 2 and 6.9%. So those razor-thin margins are artificial because the LCBO is so greedy that they couldn't give a little bit more control to the grocers, so the retailers to do that. Because the LCBO is already going to be taking their cut. The, the LCBO is already yes. going to be taking whatever taxes are, are on these bottles. Like when you go to a wine rack or a wine shop, like these are privately owned stores owned by two large wine companies in Ontario, but it is not a 2 or 6.9% margin at those stores. And the LCBO is still making quite a bit of money off of those going into their coffers due to the sale of alcohol. You know, the one I actually thought about too was, I remember when we started being able to buy alcohol in grocery stores, how you need to go through certain checkouts yep. because you had to go through certain checkouts that, you know, the people were qualified to sell alcohol and qualified to check age. And I had this moment where I thought, oh, I don't know if grocery stores is the place to have infrastructure to manage alcohol sales. Because yep. if you are buying at the beer store at the LCBO, their entire their entire setup is designed to ensure that people are of age when buying alcohol. Now you have to train new people, open up certain aisles that actually will bottleneck the entire process and make it a lot more difficult to be purchasing alcohol and probably puts a burden on grocers that they might not have considered in the moment when they decide to stock something that had an age restriction on it. Uh, you know what? I don't know if I'd necessarily agree with that with that Maroki though. Like I worked in a grocery store when I was 16 years old and we sold cigarettes, which is regulated very much the same way that alcohol is. You check IDs, you do the sales and like fine. Maybe you don't want a 16-year-old handling alcohol. Like, I can see legal complications with that. But, like, you know, our government has found a way to make legal exceptions for employment, for, you know, minimum wage if you're a certain age. Like, I mean, there's all sorts of ways that the government can can take control to make it easier for grocery stores to to run this operation. And, oh my gosh, Maroki, after spending most of the year talking about the greedy... Uh, profiteering grocery stores. I can't believe we're actually defending grocery stores, but I think it's just getting less government involved. You know, I think the secret to allowing grocers to make a little bit of money, um, allowing the government to continue to make money to pay for our healthcare, is to be less involved in the sale of alcohol at grocery stores and let them, you know, compete with each other, bring in interesting products, and you know, get out of get out of their business. Yeah, and I mean, that's totally fair. And as someone who doesn't buy cigarettes, um, I'm not quite sure how grocery stores sell them now. But my thinking, or at least from my memory alone, I'm assume I don't think every single grocery aisle sells cigarettes these days, right? No, 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 no. They were held behind a one or two. Yeah, yeah. You have to, but you have to go to one or two certain aisles, and perhaps it's maybe they just needed to develop those funnels a little bit better. I feel like we could talk about the subject probably for an entire show if we wanted to, but we have more cool and exciting things than constantly digging all into the uh, economics of selling wine in grocery stores. However, when we wrap up the segment, I actually do remember this one little moment, though, and I don't know if it's changed, and maybe you have a better finger on the pulse than I do, Andre, on this. I recall there was a period of time showing up at a few restaurants that had converted to bottle shops over the pandemic, and as we returned back to a much more, I, I guess, like, quote-unquote, open society, 
a lot of them were beginning to do away with their bottle shops. And I asked them why they said their bottle shops weren't as economical as they wanted. And they were going to make more money being going back to being a restaurant and selling their alcohol, sort of the uh, the restaurant prices as opposed to trying to compete against themselves. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think um, bottle shops are going to are going to and I say this future tense become a part of the culture in Ontario of an alternative for people to buy product through the LCBO because this channel does allow people to control their margins, control their products, but it is so exclusive. And I don't think the mainstream culture has really tapped into the fact that this is a good alternative way to buy wine and beer. Um, I think it's going to be a decade or longer before people really uh, adjust to the fact that there are more places to buy wine and beer than just grocery stores and the LCBO. And to be honest, I think the, the grocery store story that we've just talked about is a symptom of just how strong that grip the LCBO has on the consumer mindset in the province of Ontario that I don't think a lot of people think about alternatives to where they can buy a unique product or a delicious product other than the LCBO. So it'll be a while. Mm -hmm. So this is your PSA from Andre Prune, Maroki Tong to go check out your local restaurant and see if they have a bottle shop available where you can pick up really cool wine, beer, spirits, and even non-alcoholic options that aren't available at the LCBO. And coming up after the break, we did touch on the fact that you are on the road, but it did lead to an, an interesting conversation that you and I were having about what it's like back home in Toronto here. So coming up after the break, we are going to talk about whether or not Toronto has a signature dish. So stick around. We'll be back very, very shortly on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. Uh, I am Andre Pru, and Maroki Tong is joining us once again from the road. Um, Maroki, how many stamps have you got on your passport this summer? I have lost track, and I think we did the math, and my partner said that according to his calculations, I have spent less time in Toronto this summer than anywhere else in the world, and I'm actually kind <laughs> of frustrated by it. I actually said to everyone this year, I don't plan on traveling a lot this summer. I really want to... <laughs> spend time in my own backyard. I want to enjoy Toronto. And somehow I jinxed myself horrifically by saying that. That sounds about right. You know, one hmm. thing that one thing that you're missing a little bit, because like you and I do hang out outside of the, the radio show is my, um, my little baby girl, Spencer. She's uh, just coming up on seven months old. So we started her on solid foods. And it has been a bit of a trip. I mean, one of my biggest fears as um, you know, someone who's a foodie, who's married to a chef, who works in hospitality outside of this, is that my child will be a picky eater. So we're trying to introduce her to a variety of foods bit by bit. But um, one of my simple joys from the past week was I gave her her first taste of a raspberry. And Maroki, um, how do you think Spencer reacted when I gave her her first taste of raspberry? Um, if my experience of babies are any indication, she smashed it up tasted it, smashed it up some more, and then threw it on the floor. Um, she took a little bit on her tongue and proceeded to burst out crying. Like, five alarm, like, just bawling. And, yeah. Um, I will keep reporting back as Spencer gets used to tasting solid foods. I think I might make a good segment on an upcoming show. It's just talking... Maybe we should talk to, uh, like, our parenting expert at 640 Toronto about food and babies and see if we can get some information for some of the parents in the car. I know you are not a uh, are not a parent, but um, I don't know. Like I said, I'm afraid that my baby's going to be a picky eater. So working on that. Maybe, not maybe we need a social experiment where we just uh, put your child on air and proceed to feed her different foods and announce to our audience 
what what she's eating and what she's doing with it. Although it might be mostly amusing for me. Uh, Maybe one day you shouldn't be putting like tart raspberries in her mouth from the get go and give her something a little more unctuous and delicious. Like what I am eating in Chicago, or what I should say, what there I we should go. Be oh, eating in there's Chicago, a segue. There's a segue. Been, yeah, yeah. Well, I know, I know you've been telling me what I should be eating in Chicago, and yes. I've been breaking all the rules, Andre. Yes, I know you probably have from the get go. Um, and and guess uh, that, that that's me um, telling everyone in the car I'm in Chicago. Yes, and you have had a list of items that I should be eating in Chicago, starting <laughs> with the famous deep dish pizza. And what do I do on my first night when I arrive? I eat New Haven style pizza. So what is New Haven style pizza? What is New Haven style pizza? I consider myself an aficionado, and even I don't know what that is. Um, it's a thinner crust pizza. Oh, boo, think, boo, boo. Yeah. Oh, oh, come on! I am with the believer of the thin crust pizza because it means that you can taste all the toppings a little bit better. Oh, I love it when you get a delicious, like, chewy, greasy, you know, vessel of flavor like a deep dish crust. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, okay, but we'll I guess I guess I'm willing to put myself through that. So, so that was okay. So so this actually led us to an, an interesting conversation that you and I were having is what is the quintessential Torontonian dish? Because you did not eat deep dish pizza. Have, I, have you had it yet? I know you're there for like another day or so. I have not had it yet. And I've decided that out of all the things I need to put into my body, um, the Chicago hot dog yes. was one that actually did tickle our fancy. And I've heard that apparently eating the, uh, a beef sandwich is another one and i did find out that where they shot the tv show the bear yes actually is at a place in chicago called mr beef so we are going to be hunting for that because i definitely love finding sets of um shows that i've watched that's exciting uh, and actually i didn't yeah. actually didn't know about the the beef sandwich the the whole mr beef like um i really have really enjoyed that show uh so i'm curious to hear how that goes down but uh the chicago style hot dog okay so Anyone who isn't sitting in the car right now, it's actually quite divisive in Chicago. Apparently, whether or not you put ketchup on it, I think even to the point where the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, has said ketchup does not belong on a Chicago-style hot dog. But the whole idea is it's supposed to look like it was dragged through some sort of garden. Like Toppings are yellow mustard, white onion, green relish, you know, some sort of hot peppers, fresh tomato, uh, a dill pickle spear, some celery salt. And I, I have had the Chicago style hot dog. It's one of these things where like you always picture the hot dog stands in New York. Like when you see movies and, and television shows and it's just like, I think a, a New York style hot dog is completely overrated because it doesn't have that like gourmet factor. But like even, even like a really dirty, you know, small corner hole in the wall version of a Chicago hot dog is, um, it still has that like gourmet factor. Yeah, uh, I. it sounds like a fully loaded hot dog to me. And from what I've heard from Eric's friends, you're not supposed to put ketchup on it, but maybe they're just on that one side of the camp. Well, there we go. Have you had one yet? I have not had one yet. That's why I said it, it, those are the two things that are still on my list to try and uh, put into my body before I leave. But the question I sort of had for you, Andre, when you were telling me to eat all these foods, it, it just <laughs> triggered a question in my mind where I thought, does Toronto even have that kind of signature meal? Like when someone says, go to Toronto, and I've talked to a lot of people about coming to Toronto this summer, obviously in my travel saying, oh, you need to come up to Toronto. The food scene there is amazing. It's diverse. You can eat everything you could ever want. But I never say, oh, you should land on this one particular cuisine or this one particular food. 
So do you think that there's a quintessential signature Toronto dish? I don't. Uh, wait, I do. But it's never like front of mind like it is when you send someone to Chicago or New York for a hot dog. Is I really think the mighty street meat from Toronto is our quintessential dish. And I think it's one of those things where anyone who's lived in the city, especially if you move to the city when you're a student or in your 20s or 30s and out a little bit too late at night, um, we have all consumed a hot dog. And it's just like the, the Toronto, the mighty Toronto street meat is a little bit different than I think anywhere else in the world. But I would also argue more delicious than anywhere else in the world, even the Chicago dog. Ooh, that's some fighting words because I know in Iceland, um, when I traveled there in 2011, the hot dog is like their official dish. I did not know that. Yeah, they're they're super famous for their hot dogs and they have a hot dog stand in Reykjavik that notably celebrities and presidents all over the world have gone to eat there because they make the most famous hot dog. I can't tell you the last time I've eaten a Toronto street meat probably was also 2011. I will personally say I don't know if that's like our signature dish like it doesn't you know when you talk about the Chicago dog and all the special toppings it has Toronto doesn't quite have that it's yeah. not like oh the Toronto street meat should have sauerkraut or should have onions or should have no but it's our variety but it's our variety of toppings and they're talking about people like corn relish is a bit of a staple at most of the Toronto street meat stands and that's not something that you really see anywhere else in the world uh you can get sauerkraut you can get onions but it's just like also you know, the Toronto street meat dog is, you know, a little bit bigger than the New York and Chicago style dog as well. So, you know, when you're a poor student, and I think back when I moved to the city, it was like three bucks for a hot dog. I think it's a little bit more now, but like, where else could you get a full meal for that price? Huh. Uh, let's get broader strokes for a second here. Maybe talk about Canadian dish. I know for a while when I was a child, this, this might be incredibly archetypal, if not stereotypical, I remember when I was a child, everyone wanted to talk about the beaver tail as the Canadian dish. You know, but the beaver the tail is a bit of a, a novelty because I think it's one where it is such a touristy thing. It's not really something that's consumed by locals and then shared, you know? Mm, that's fair. It's funny because now that I think about it, one of the things I do like to take people to when they come visit Toronto from, from abroad or from wherever, actually, frankly, from wherever is I'll take them for really good Chinese food. Because I find that even if you're in New York or um, in another metropolitan city, you rarely get as deeply immersed as you can get in quality Chinese food than in places like Markham or Scarborough. So it's not even in Toronto. Like, I won't even take them to Chinatown. I'll say, let's go for dim sum in Markham. Or let me take you to Fishman Lobster Clubhouse if you want to see the giant lobster tower. Well, there you have it. And if you're looking for maybe the next big thing coming up in Toronto, you and I have taken a look at a list of restaurants that Foodism has put together about some new restaurants opening up. So if it's not Chinese food, it might be something on this list that we're going to take a look at after the break. On 640 Toronto, this is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. So Andre Pru, you have just outed me on how I've not <laughs> been home at all to enjoy all the amazing things that are happening in Toronto this summer. But you have had your finger on the pulse on all the cool new spots that are opening up and all the things I need to do when I come back for the last few weeks oh 100 percent. i've been just keeping an eye open for what's new in the city i know it's been as we mentioned on the show kind of a weird summer for a lot of restaurants a lot of places where it's maybe a little easier to get a reservation than normal and i'm always 
curious to see who is going to open up and also who is going to still be open during this. So I think you need to make sure that you've got yourself at a very high level when that happens, uh, given what's happened in the, um, the economy right now. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, Foodism is a really great publication, foodism.to. They are also people who have their fingers on the pulse of what's happening on the city. And they just listed uh, a list of uh, 15 hot new places open in the city. Let's see, the 15 new Toronto restaurants to add to your summer hit list. And I know it feels like summer's going by way too fast. Um, but there are a few places that I earmarked there. I think the first one that, that caught my eye, uh, as everybody who listens to the show knows, I've been very critical of the, the Michelin Guide, but I do think that the restaurants that were in the mentions and the Bib Gourmand were definitely some of the better places in Toronto. And Ristorante Social, which is open up on uh, King Street, is um, um, a new venture from the same group that has Inuteca Social on Dundas, which is still one of my favorite restaurants in the city. And, you know, just taking a quick look at their Instagram, I mean, the grid isn't completely full yet, but the stuff that they're giving a sneak peek at, it looks like delicious cocktails, maybe even a little bit more glamour than, you know, the down-to-earth stylings of Enoteca Social. And the thing that I'm looking at the grid right now is the plating of the porterhouse steak that they've got mm. on the menu where, you know, I see it, it's it's a big steak between two place settings, but I mean, I'm the sort of person where I'm not sure I want to share that with someone. <laughs> well, as someone who's had steak very recently, and I love my steak and red meat, I probably wouldn't share it with anyone else either. <laughs> I find it, I find it fascinating that you look at like places like it's like Restaurant Sociale that shows up on your list, um, or at least like shows up on your radar immediately. I, I've. This is gonna. I'm gonna. I'm about to throw myself under the bus, or maybe put myself for the pitchfork. I tend to not look at Italian restaurants with a lot of excitement whenever I see them open up. I definitely am the person when I see yet another bowl of pasta, I'm like, oh boy, yet another bowl of pasta. Let's like scroll on and see something new and interesting. And I usually wait until the early reviews come in or <sighs> even later reviews come in to say, who are the true like masters of the pasta uh, in the city before I decide to stop into an Italian restaurant? I know one spot that actually, even before I saw it on this list, has um, received some buzz from various friends and colleagues of mine is Laylac, which opened up um, in Toronto and they're doing in the financial district and they're doing Lebanese cuisine. And I've oh, heard really good things about that one. And um, uh, not only do they have Lebanese style, like oat cuisine, so they say, quote unquote, they also do um, a Lebanese centered wine list. And I'm excited for that because we do not see Lebanese wines uh, come through Ontario all that often. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I love it when you got a place that's trying to do a really um, unique experience. Like, I'll be honest, I don't even know what Lebanese food is, but I want to find out. I was really fortunate when I started my acting career with some of the first uh, the first theater company I worked in, the artistic director and some of the core members of the team were all Lebanese. And the way they've always described it to me was that Lebanon was the Paris of the Middle East. And it was just this like really amazing spot with so much culture, so much food. <laughs> and they they made sure they put it into my belly all the time. So I'm super, super excited for that. I know um, you and I both had one on our list uh, together, which was the Yunnan Noodle Shack. <laughs> and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if it's for if it's for very different reasons. Because when I was taking a look at it, 
Um, I'm curious about it because it it's proudly touted as like a dining for one experience. And like when you take a look, uh, once again, at their Instagram page, they have their uh, dining room set up. It looks a little bit like a universal, a university library, you know, circa, you know, 2004, back when I was in school, um, pre-internet where you would take a book or take uh, some tapes if you were listening to them. And it's like individual kiosks. Like it is definitely, it is definitely not a destination for a first date. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I, I guess like for me, I, I, I admittedly didn't look at the layout of the restaurant, but when they said it was, you know, more for the singular dining experience, perhaps I'm just used to it. Going to places like Japan, a lot of places like in Hong Kong and China, yeah. the, the way you eat it's fast, it's on the go, and often it's for people who are commuting either to and from school, to and from work, and it's meant to be a quick experience, right? If you look at a lot of the izakaya style, like in Japan, or even ramen houses, right? You go in and you just literally sit at the counter, eat a dish, and go. Um, oh, even, notably in Hong Kong, even there in is a kind of... Mm-hmm. So I was going to say, like, even in Japan, like, one of the most interesting experiences that, that I personally had um, involved a kiosk set up on a subway platform. So like picture like museum subway station in Toronto, but with a dude with a hot pot and a vending machine and you buy a ticket from the vending machine to tell the dude with the hot pot what you want to order and it gives you a bowl of noodles and you've got to eat it in between trains to make sure you don't miss your train. Yeah, and I mean, notably when I was in Hong Kong, one of the things that I drank a lot of is herbal teas and there's these usually herbal tea stands basically, you know, due to smog and quality of air and 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 stress you know everyone's always kind of finding a way to try and i guess like cool their bodies off or heal their bodies so the same there was just you usually just like a little counter or a little hole in the wall and they would literally be putting these teas in these bowls you go up you give them 10 hong kong dollars you pick up the bowl you chug it and you set it down and you just leave yep. and that's just the the nature of the beast so i'm excited for that for me i'm excited because um i'm just more I, I always wanted to see cultures represented more granularly yeah. in other countries. So, you know, when we talked about Korean food, it's like when I think when we talk about Korean food, all we talk about is Korean barbecue. Yeah. All we talk is bibimbap. But when I was in Seoul, Korea, the diversity of these other dishes that were available that I've never seen in Toronto um, kind of made me really, really sad. And it's the same with China, right? Like China and you say Chinese food, that's a really dang big country. Oh, 100%. And the food is so different depending on the different provinces you went to. And I had the opportunity when I was in Shanghai years ago to go to a, a Yunnan cuisine space. And I thought to myself, well, this is incredible. And I'm never going to be able to taste this again outside of China itself, where they do focus on dishes from province to province. So how exciting it is to see that they're opening up a Yunnan noodle shop in Toronto. So I'm definitely going to have to kind of go there and do some comparative su- studies, so to say. Yeah, and, and apart from just the, the authentic cultural aspect, I'm always excited when we're seeing the lowly noodle elevated to new heights because I don't know if I could trust someone who doesn't like noodles. You know what I mean? Well, I grew up with noodles, so I suppose that it had to, you know, like rice, it's uh, it runs in my blood, in my veins, and probably some of my muscle buildup as well, or carb buildup, so to say. Um, as we wrap up the segment, one other place I wanted to shout out is number one on the list, which was Kisa, 
Okay. Which is a speakeasy style tea house, but Jap- like a 1920s style Japanese speakeasy tea house. <laughs> yeah, and that looks interesting. I love speakeasies. One, um, I love izakaya style. I would be super um, curious to see whether it lives up to the hype. Because I will say I also have been disappointed by speakeasies that have opened up. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I know for me... Seeing a Union Market mentioned on the list, it was actually something I, I hadn't even been cognizant of because I do do quite a bit of commuting through Union Station. Like I go here, there, and everywhere. Uh, sometimes I go transit, sometimes on the TTC. But, um, you know, I remember moving to the city in 2007 and Union Station felt like it was under construction then. And here we are in 2023, almost 20 years later. It feels like the construction's finally finished. And there is a lot going on at Union Station these days, which is a weird thing to say. But apparently, um, Union Station has a, a project called the Union Market, and it's going to be a selection of Toronto pop-ups, permanent shops, and it's opening up right now, but it's just something to keep an eye on uh, as we go forward. So, um, you know, Union Station is actually a decent yeah. place to hang out and wait for a train now rather than rather than impatiently waiting for your next train to show up. I really enjoy the movement that they've had to try and turn Union Station uh, a central hub, like a true nexus point for everyone coming in from out of town or leaving town um, in Toronto to gather and enjoy their space as opposed to just very much being a flow through transit point. It actually tickles my fancy a lot. But uh, coming up after the break, we're going to (laughs) be... Traveling a little bit back <laughs> to Greece now that Danny Longo's joining us back from vacation just to fill him in on all the tea, I guess, so to say. And then we'll be chatting about a little, a few other summer drinks that you could add to your menu that is not just wine. That's coming up after the break on Tasting Together 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together Toronto's News. Today's talk 640 Toronto. Well, Andre, last week you and I were missing a quintessential third member of our group when we dive into our fourth segment, but we do have him back, Danny Longo from the Global Newsroom. You missed out. We talked about some fun things. Yes, I did miss out. I did listen to the show. I heard you talking about Greek wine, and I do have a question, and I've asked you this before. I know you were there recently, and like, are there any good Greek wines? I never see any when I'm at the LCB. There's an Italian section. There's a, a Spanish oh. section, Australian, Chile. You know, oh. what do you do with the Greek wines? Oh, the arrows, they pierce me so deeply right now. <laughs> and it's so funny, Danny, because I literally ranted about this very, very briefly last week, just speaking about how here in North America, and maybe more specifically one in Ontario, hmm. We don't have the selections that we really should be having to represent wine on a global scale, right? I was sort of saying, like, we as North Americans are barely just beginning to see Greek wines appear. Um, There is the destination uh, Greece section in the Danforth at the Danforth LCBO where you have a phenomenal selection there. But almost anywhere else, you don't see any Greek wine. So we think it's like a new phenomenon, but they've actually been making wine for hundreds of years. Um, maybe even a couple thousand years, as long as, I mean, heck, they have a god of wine. Dionysus is the god of wine. (laughs) They can't not be at least making some semi-decent wine. So 
the short answer is yes, Danny, they make some really phenomenal Greek wine. And this is like my mission to make sure I get some Greek wines in your hands. But if you think about regions like Slovenia and Croatia, yeah. Georgia, yeah. they've been making wines for hundreds and hundreds of years. We just never really get access to it over here in Ontario. I, I love to blow people's minds with this factoid. Did you guys know that Zinfandel, very popular Zinfandel a la California, was originally from Croatia? Yes, I did know this. Danny, did you I, know I, that? I said that far too no, fast. I absolutely did not know that. Well, not I have many guys. Croatian friends. I'm surprised they haven't told me about this. Yeah, it's uh, it's under a different name there, which escapes me. And I guess I, I fully left my uh, my snob hat at home. So, oh, Primitivo as well. Sorry, that's what okay. it's known as. Well, Primitivo is what it's known as in Italy. In Croatia, it's known as Tribidrag. And also a really long Croatian <laughs> name that I'm not going to pronounce. So yet another there, example. So that. Yet another example of the wine world making it easy to keep track of what's what. Yes, yes, but Danny, I will encourage you to keep your eye out for grapes like a Sirtico and um, uh, Ioritico uh, in from the Greek section coming down the line, and Moscow you will Filaro. be surprised. Wait, I said it wrong. Uh, Moscow Filaro. You yes, and I, you, you and I right. did something Mos- on Instagram with that like a year and a half ago. Yes, okay. we did. Yes, I we did. Do, I will do this. I actually am very much looking forward to trying Greek wine. All right. If I can already. We've been fortunate enough now that the show's been on for a while where people are actually sending us some product for consideration. And there were a couple that kind of stood out a little bit that I, I, I thought it'd be fun for us to talk about. Uh, especially when we get to this port part of the summer where the days are really, really hot. And, you know, I like to think about uh, my time in Rome last year and the amount of spritz that people drink and just the gin and tonics that we have. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll ask both of you. Do you guys drink much gin? I'll go first. I am not much of a gin fan myself. Um, so, no. I'm, And I, I definitely do not like tonic, which usually goes very well with gin. So I do not drink much gin. That is I not did. one of the spirits I, uh, I prefer. I was not expecting that answer to the question, Danny. What kind of person doesn't <laughs> like gin and tonic? <laughs> Wow. It's like when I go to a restaurant, would you like still sparkling or tap? I was just like, give me some still. I'm like, I don't I don't do sparkling. Oh, okay. You just don't <laughs> do the bubbles. You you you, yeah. you got a bit of the Ted Lasso factor going on. A little bit, yes. How about you, Maroki? Um, I do drink gin. I haven't jumped down the gin, um, the rising of gin because it definitely is like on fire right now in the market. I've I haven't dived into it as much as probably some other folks has, mostly because I just find that um my liver and my palate can only do so many things, and you can only <laughs> learn so many things at once. We already do so much wine. I do so much beer. I do so much whiskey. I, I I would love the idea of nerding out about gin, but I don't think my wallet can handle it any further. And like I said, my liver and my palate. However, and the other thing is, is that I just love a good old dirty martini. And I find that truthfully, after trying a few craft gins, I really just um, dig my Bombay Sapphire to make me my super dirty martini with so much olive juice in it. And I made the cardinal mistake one time many years ago buying this beautiful craft gin from Malaga, Spain that was made with 12 citruses and not quite realizing, like not really understanding what gin was at the time, made myself a dirty martini with it. <laughs> and I can tell you that olive juice and citrus do not go well together. You know what? I actually think that's a perfect segue to talk about the gin that was sent to us because I was, when I got the press release sent to us, I sent it to you guys. I just saw that it was a new gin. It was um, it was from a group that I, I recognize really well. So I'm happy to to try when they have samples. And I was just like, Oh, I'll make myself a dirty martini when this product arrives. When the bottle showed up at the house and you guys have both <laughs> tasted it as well, it was pink. 
It was yes. very, you talk about citrusy, it tasted like pink grapefruit cocktail, but with mm. Christmas tree. Mm. Da- I know, Danny, you yeah. said you're, you're not a, a big gin drinker, but what did you think of it? This is the Malfi pink gin that, uh, that we tried. I actually haven't tried it yet, but now oh, that you're Danny. talking about I'm very much, I'm very much, I did try the scotch. Uh, I haven't tried the gin. I'm very much, I do like flavor gins. Uh, there was a, a, a rhubarb gin that uh, I bought actually in Nova Scotia years ago, Steinhardt. It was delicious. So I do like some flavored gins, a regular gin, not so much. Huh, huh. Fascinating. Well, so I am looking forward to this one. I am unfortunately haven't tried it yet. What should I mix oh, it no. with? Is there something besides tonic I can mix it with? <laughs> oh, should it be like sparkling Great. water. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and you said you don't like bubbles either because, I mean, like I said, I started the segment with the spritz and, you know, throwing some Prosecco in with that gin I think would go quite okay. nicely. But, uh, ooh, I think oh, I can just... do that. I mean, I, I, I like bubbly. I like sparkling wines and like things like that. I'm just not so much a fan of uh, tonic. Okay, okay. You know what? The other thing about this particular gin too is it does have quite a bit of sweetness. So even just cutting it with like maybe like a nice slice of like actual grapefruit or orange and throwing, okay. um, you know, some nice, I guess, club soda is once again bubbles. Sorry, Danny, I got nothing for you. <laughs> I think this gin's just meant to be bubbly. Okay. Or just ice it. Just ice it heavily with a big rock and with a with a yeah, with a like a squeeze of grape juice grapefruit. I would say like for this one, what I like about it, I know we're you know, Danny's talking about how he doesn't like his bubbles, but if you are a GT drinker, but you don't want a lot of sugar as tonic water is apt to have, this gin has enough like lovely flavor in it that I would just simply cut it with club soda so I can enjoy uh, a GT without all the sugar behind it. And I don't know if you knew this, Andre, but the pink gin, like that color, yep. was super trendy a few years ago. And I actually never tried any of the gin that was made pink. Like, I think Beef Eater was one of the first ones to ever do it, at least from my memory. Yeah, it was pretty um, so it's sweet, kind of, too. It's kind of, yeah, it's fun to see it come around again. Yeah, because I remember the Beef Eater one being, like, it, it was it was saccharine. It was very, very, very sweet. Hmm. We uh, actually brought back a bottle from Portugal of uh, a pink gin. Ooh. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, there we and go. And did it taste like anything good? I It's still unopened. Well, there we oh. go. <laughs> You know what? Moving on as we're getting to the end of the end of the segment here, too. There was something else interesting I just wanted to uh, raise attention to because we talk about pairings often on the show, and spirits aren't something that usually gets that treatment. And the Belveni um, d- distillery in double Scotland, the, yeah. The, well, the Doublewood is the one, but they actually have a whole program called the Symphony of Summer Flavors, where they came up with a whole list of different pairings to go with different products of theirs. But I think it works outside of the Belveni, just the the Doublewood there. The one they recommended with the double wood was um corn on the cob with honey butter and that's the the whiskey that was sent to us to taste and um i can definitely see that working given my one of my favorite notes from that particular scotch is it, it very much has that whole cereal milk feel to it you know mm. mm-hmm. and i can just see like honey inherently is some of those flavors that could come out in oak and so it would kind of bring out the sweetness or the more fruit flavors of the Balvini as opposed to the smokiness. I was actually most tickled by the oysters paired with uh, their 14-year single malt because I love oysters and we talk about oysters and champagne all the time as a pairing. And I've also heard of oysters and I think, no, no, sorry, I'm wrong. That was caviar and vodka. Oysters and Mm. champagne, caviar and vodka. But I've never heard of it being paired with whiskey. However, I am a whiskey drinker. So this is a pairing I definitely need to try in in my future. Mine was the uh, skirt steak with asparagus uh, with the Caribbean cask, the 14-year-old Caribbean cask, which 
I, I do find gives it a little bit more of the caramelized notes when you find a, a scotch that's been put in that particular cask. And honestly, my prairie boy is showing I eat a lot of steak in the summer, guys. <laughs> Danny, what's your favorite pairing as we wrap up the segment? Oh, with spirits? Oh, geez, this is a tough one. <laughs> Danny, did you taste the double wood or is that also untasted? I did. I, I okay. did taste the double wood. Yeah, I, I very much enjoyed it. I just had it on the rocks, uh, just straight, and uh, I very much enjoyed it. Well, there we go. Danny pairs it with rocks. Yes. <laughs> well, Danny, it's good to have you back. Thank you. And It's good to be back. And I guess until next week, uh, 5 o'clock on 640 Toronto, we are tasting together where... I don't know, Maroki, what are we talking about next week? Pairing whiskey with different kinds of rocks. <laughs> so stay tuned. Let's find out what whiskey pairs with granite. <laughs>